Fred Ricciani of the Sports Courier Podcast. We have right here on the line a very special guest. This man has had more job titles than John Cena has had world titles, than Jay Lethal has had ROH titles. We are talking to Kevin Eck, former WCW Magazine editor, former WWE writer, longtime Baltimore Sun journalist, BaltimoreRavens.com writer, and now a writer for Ring of Honor Wrestling, and another new job title, podcast host. Kevin, how's everything going? Everything is great. Man, when you ran down my uh, resume there, it sounds like I've lost a lot of jobs over the years. <laughs> hey, you've gained more than you won, so that, uh, that that's all good. Now, One before, door closes, one door, another door opens, right? Is that what they say? Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we dive into your career, and it's had a lot of twists and turns, a lot, I'm sure a lot of interesting stories, uh, I want to talk to you about your latest endeavor. You're working with Ring of Honor. Of course, you are a writer for them online and creatively, but you're also hosting a little podcast called ROH Strong. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So... Here, just a little background for a second. Um, people have asked me for actually years, like friends of mine and other people in the business, why don't I do a wrestling podcast? And I said, well, because everybody has a wrestling podcast. There's, uh, what, what can I really do different? Even former WWE writers have podcasts. So I didn't really think I could add anything new. But I did think about it over the years, and I, I talked to certain people about maybe partnering with them and trying to do something that's a little bit different than the typical wrestling podcast. But nothing ever really came of it, and you know we all have other jobs and things that took us away from that idea, and so it was just kind of got put on the back burner. Once I got to Ring of Honor, we also batted that idea around of a, uh, an official Ring of Honor podcast. And again, it was something that you know, everybody was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, but then we've all got other things and we get busy and it's just like, it gets put on the back burner. However, with the pandemic and us looking for new ways, uh, to generate content while we're not doing live events, the podcast idea at that point, it just seemed like a natural to, well, let's stop talking about doing a ring of honor podcast and let's, let's do one. And, um, and so we did, and I'm, I'm real excited about it. Yeah, I I am too. And I, I like the fact that ROH as well on the social media front has been updating their YouTube channel a hell of a lot more and their streaming service, Honor Club, a hell, a hell of a lot more. I mean, they have such a deep archive. I don't think some younger fans realize. ROH has been around since 2002. I think they actually came about a month or two before Impact Wrestling. So yeah. they have all these years of, of great wrestling, great talent, still have great talent to this day. And I think it'll definitely be interesting. I mean, you got Marty Skrull as your guest. I'm sure you're going to have a number of other guests that got plenty to talk about. Absolutely. And um, I, I'm going to give a shout out to... Um, Mandy Leon, and she might kill me for doing this, I don't know, but Mandy's not just a talent, but she works behind the scenes, and a lot of stuff that you see on social media, um, Mandy is in charge of that, and I just think she's always done a great job, but since um, we've wanted to generate more and more content and engage with fans, um, she's like literally all day, she's updating our social media and Twitter and everything. And, and, and really, she's our liaison to the talent and encouraging them to do the videos that you see and all this stuff. So Mandy is kind of the unsung hero. She's much more than just an on-screen talent. And um, I don't think a lot of people know that. I don't know if she wants people to know that, but now anyone obviously watching this will know that. Um, as far as the podcast goes, one thing I insisted on if we were going to do it is even though it will be the official Ring of Honor podcast, it can't it has to be real, right? Like it can't come off as a ring of honor public relations tool. It has to be, we have to like ask real questions. And that's why, um, the first person that came to mind, like uh, there was no other person to me than Marty. It had to be Marty Skrull. Uh, 
most of the fans know that Marty's role in the company changed. Marty re-signed and became more than just an in-ring talent. He became the head of creative. And I think there's a lot of questions that people would have for Marty. And, and I asked all those questions. And Marty, to his credit, answered all those questions. So that's what I really want people to know. And they'll, they'll find this out. Uh, the podcast drops Monday. Um, this is not going to be, you know, a puff piece for, for lack of a better term. We're going to ask legit questions and we're going to pull back the curtain a little bit. It's not something we ever really do on ROHwrestling.com. Uh, but these are, you know, these desperate times, desperate measures, whatever. This is a different time we're living in. And if we're going to engage with our fans, like we're, we're doing on all kinds of platforms, now is the time to sort of step out of character and engage with fans. And once things start up again, Obviously, we'll, we'll get back to, to that. But the podcast will always be, in my mind anyway, its own. It'll live as its own entity and that, you know, we're not going to do uh, character driven stuff. We're going to we're going to interview. It's going to be like, you know, other podcasts you hear. If, if Ring of Honor talent goes on your show or any other show, they don't, for the most part, stay in character. And it's going to be the same thing on the ROH Strong podcast. So you cover pro wrestling, of course. You also work on the creative side. You cover pro football pretty extensively. Obviously, you've been writing forever. Uh, what came first into your life? Was it writing? Was it pro football? Was it pro wrestling? Did it all just kind of come about at the same time? It was a mix of uh, pro wrestling and writing. I mean, from a very young age, I loved both. I fell in love with wrestling when I was six years old, way back in the 70s, back in when the WWWF, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, was around. Growing up in Baltimore, uh, my parents used to take me to the shows. They were monthly in Baltimore. We went every month. This is back when Bruno San Martino was champion, the, his second reign. And But at that same time, though, I had this, uh, this love of writing. And I was writing short stories from a very early age. And then not long after that, I'd say by the time I was maybe seven or eight years old, I became a big baseball and football fan. Wrestling was always first, but then I, I grew to love the Orioles, the Colts at the time. Um, and I would write articles. I would watch the, the games, the baseball games or, you know, football games, whatever. And then like, I would be the sports writer and write up, you know, my little write up. And then after that, you know, having a, a creative mind, I think to some extent I would, I think like a lot of people who are wrestling fans, I would fantasy book and, you know, my friends would act out our, you know, hey, you be Bruno and I'll be Billy Graham and we'd book programs and things like that. And uh, same thing with uh, like baseball and football. I would have my own leagues and, you know, the Orioles and Colts, I think, won the World Series and Super Bowl a lot in the 70s when I was booking it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my friends and I would go out on the, you know, on the playground or whatever and we would act it out. So it, it was really um, a love of both to where I knew I'm very lucky. I knew early on what I wanted to do. And that was right. Whether it was, whether it was writing creative, uh, you know, short stories or, or things like that, or if it was more on the journalism side. And that's what I gravitated to as I got older was I want to be a sports writer. And so that's what I pursued. And again, I was very lucky that I figured it out early. That's what I want to put my mind to. That's what I want to go to school for. And, um, you know, I've been very lucky. I, you ran down the list of jobs. So I, I feel very, very fortunate to have you know been able to work at as many places as I have and work with as many great people and learn from them, whether it's journalists at the Baltimore Sun or people that I've worked with um, in wrestling. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've learned a ton. And again, I, I feel very fortunate all the places I have been. 
Yeah, man. I've, I've, I feel like I've been reading you for years since I was a kid. Not to call you old, just like you, <laughs> when I heard I was going to interview Kevin Eck, I got pretty excited because I remember reading your stuff in the Baltimore Sun. But I'm curious because you've done WCW Magazine. Of course, you're doing ROH now. You did WWE. What was your very first big break or what you'd consider a real foot in the door? So working at the Baltimore Sun, I was constantly um, and I worked in the sports department. So I was constantly pushing for us to do wrestling articles. This was in the 90s uh, before the Monday Night Wars. And there was a real uh, like a lot of, you know, newspapers, mainstream journalists um, did not like pro wrestling. And they said that doesn't belong anywhere near the sports section. And the answer was no. Um, Now, once the Monday Night Wars happened and wrestling got more popular, then there was more of a um, there was more of a want to do it, but it was not for the sports section. When I wrote about it, it would be for the feature section, which was fine as long as we got it in the paper somewhere. And so what would happen is anytime WCW or WWE would come to Baltimore, I would reach out to the two companies um, and try to set up an interview with a talent to promote the show. So that's how that started. The first Really, the first big article I did, the first major talent I talked to was actually Randy Savage. And I think it was 94, the King of the Ring was in Baltimore. And Randy was coming to promote it at a at a supermarket. I don't remember which one it was, but he was coming to do a signing at the supermarket and promote um, King of the Ring. And so I set up that interview. It was really like a surreal moment for me. I had never interviewed any wrestler at that point. And here here's me and the macho man and a PR guy from WWE sitting in like the storage area in the back of this uh, (laughs) this grocery store. And I did write this one for the sports section because I sold it to my editor that, well, you know, Randy Savage used to be a minor league baseball player. And I and I bet fans would be interested in that if we talked to him about his minor league baseball career. And that's what we centered it on was Randy's minor league baseball playing days um, he had played with a guy who had been through the Orioles system at that time, a guy named Tito Landrum, who was a big hero in like the 83 uh, postseason. And so like I interviewed Tito Landrum for the story and, and it was a whole thing. That was really the first time I got to interview a major wrestling star. Now, my first um, entrance working on the other side of it in the business actually was WCW. And here's the funny story to that one. Uh, you remember the WCW Bruise Cruise? Oh, man, how could I forget? (laughs) Of course. It's funny because at the time when the two companies were competing, I think WWE had the Wrestle Vessel and WCW had the Bruise Cruise. Well, anyway, I had uh, my wife, who was at that point my fiance, you know, wanted to – she had a desire to go on a cruise. And I said, well, what if we did this? What if, you know, your desire to go on a cruise and my desire to, uh, you know, hang out with a bunch of wrestlers could – you know, coincide. And so we did the bruise cruise and you get seating assignments on a cruise. And I happened to be seated with some WCW employees who in making small talk, you know, they asked me what I did for a living. I say, I work for the Baltimore sun. I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. Um, they said, well, WCW magazine is currently undergoing some changes. We're bringing it in house. It had been done by, it had been outsourced. Now they're bringing it in house and they might be looking for writers. And I got a contact of the editor was a guy named Ken Liker. So I reached out to, you know, once we got back on land, I reached out to Ken and, and Ken said, you know, uh, and I sent him my resume and he saw my credentials. Ken came from the newspaper world. So he was impressed that 
Um, I worked for a mainstream major metropolitan daily newspaper and also happened to know a lot about pro wrestling. That impressed him. And he said, you know what? We don't really have a freelance budget right now, but when we do, I'll definitely use you. So I would check in with Ken every few weeks or so just to keep touching base and they didn't have anything. And then one day I got a call from Ken and I was like, okay, great. This is going to be, I'll get the chance to make some extra money freelancing. And instead Ken offered me the job of editor. He was looking for a new editor of the magazine and said, um, you know, I'm offering it to you, uh, come down for an interview. And you know, if you take it, then, you know, you're going to move to Smyrna, Georgia and, and be a WCW employee. And at this point I had already worked for the Baltimore sun for well over a decade. And I'm a Baltimore guy, very provincial. I thought I would work for my hometown newspaper and live in Baltimore my entire life. So that was a huge deal was just to think about actually leaving the sun and leaving Baltimore. But I was like, you know what? This is too good to pass up. And, and WCW at that point, this was 2000, early 2000. Things were not going great for WCW at that point. But I thought to myself, I, I went in with my eyes open and I thought, you know what? WCW is part of Time Warner. Um, Ted Turner loves wrestling. Even though they were getting crushed in the ratings at that point by WWE, I'm like, WCW is just not going anywhere. They're going to be around forever, and I got to I got to make this step, and I did, and um, and the job lasted exactly one year. Wow. I started in March of 2000, and uh, as you know, in March of 2001, that was it. It was a wrap. Man, I mean. So when you when you joined, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was a, a, an awesome experience for what it was for that one year. But you, you said you went in there with your eyes open. So when you went in there and, and the novelty of, holy crap, I'm working for WCW and getting an interview, all these stars uh, kind of wore off. I mean, what was the reality for you? Was it like, oh, crap, I better have a backup plan? Well, it's funny because not long after I started, we started hearing the rumblings of that WCW was for sale. And who could some of the potential buyers be and things like that. So immediately there's that uncertainty of, geez, did I make a bad move? But again, I just um, I don't know whether I was being an optimist or whether I was, um, you know, was wishful thinking. I, I, I was not too worried about it at, at first. But the more it went on and certainly when it became obvious um, that that Time Warner was serious about unloading the company and you heard WWE was interested in buying it. And, you know, at that point, it was like, yeah, this this might not be good. Um, when Eric Bischoff's group came in, Fushint, I think, was uh, the company he worked with. Um, even then, we in the office weren't so sure whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. We felt like, well, this is good. WCW will go on. But who knows if there will still be a magazine? Who knows if Eric, if there is a magazine, will want this current staff to be involved in the magazine. So at that point, there was a lot of trepidation and, and reality was starting to set in. So when things went down the way they did, obviously Eric's deal fell through. Uh, WWE swooped in and, and bought the thing for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And um, I mean, I, the writing was on the wall at that point. So it was certainly no surprise to any of us when... Uh, we were all let go once WWE bought the company. Looking back, we've all heard the stories. Guy Evans did a, a great book. Brian Alvarez, Ari Reynolds did a great book as well about the death of WCW. It's been chronicled a number of times. But you have the, where you had the unique opportunity of having a front row seat to everything that was going down. 
Is there one kind of overlooked story or theme that you can recall? One that you think maybe isn't covered enough or talked about enough? Like, I'll give you an example. A lot of people say that had WCW not gone down, Sean O'Hare would have stayed on the right path. He would have become a big star. He would have been the next Goldberg, yada, yada. Is there is there anything when you look back and think about your WCW memory that you think, man, like, this doesn't get enough love or attention from back in the day? Um, no, I can't think of anything specific like you mentioned. That, that's a great point about Sean O'Hare. I, I think... He, there were big plans for him had WCW stuck around. Uh, I can't think of anything like sort of, you know, to that magnitude. But and I, I'll be honest with you, I have not read any of the, the books. Uh, I'm sure they're fine, but I haven't read any of them about like I lived the death of WCW. I didn't want to read about it. Um, I can say this and I, I, you know, I don't want to be I try not to be overly critical, but I, I'll tell it like it is. I thought Vince Russo, I had one opinion of Russo when I got there, which was that. I believe the bill of goods, right? I believed he was the architect behind the attitude era and that, um, him leaving was a huge blow to WWE and that he was this creative genius. And when I got there, uh, to WCW, I, I learned pretty quickly that, that Vince was a one trick pony. And, and I knew as long as he was running creative, we were never going to turn things around. Like I, I could just tell that. Um, us at the magazine staff, we were allowed to sit in on meetings at times or company meetings where he would give us a heads up because, you know, you got to plan a magazine out, you know, a month or so ahead of time. And, and he tried to give us some indication of storylines and here's who we're pushing and this and that. And things would change from week to week. And he would say something completely different a week after, you know, he had said something before that. So it's like there was just no way to plan things. And, and I saw he was just so scatterbrained and he was so into, um, you know, like the Jerry Springer style of wrestling, which worked for him great in WWE at that point in time. But the problem was he couldn't adjust. You know, there were different standards that, you know, standards and practices. As, and I know Vince has used that as a crutch. Like, well, I couldn't do what I wanted to do because of standards and practices and blah, blah, blah. But if you're this if you're that creative of a person you don't need to just do toilet humor and you don't need to just, um, you know, go for crash TV and shock value. And that was his downfall was that he couldn't adjust. So I knew our only hope was, was someone else taking over. And I did have some faith that Eric could be a guy to turn it around. Obviously Eric was there when WCW was at its highest. And yes, he was also there for the start of the fall, but I believed if I'm going to bet on one of those two guys, I would go with Eric a hundred times out of a hundred over Vince. Yeah, and it, and if you think about it, I mean Vince Russo. Yeah, he he was kind of a train wreck there too. And you, you think about it with Impact when they hired him, and even WWE up until the time they went PG. I feel like wrestling for a while, at least the major companies, were still kind of stuck in that crash TV, uh, attitude era, shock value, and it really had to get to the point where they had to blow it all up and and really get back to the basics. Well, it, you do. I mean, you can only go so far with it. Um, when I was at WCW, Jimmy, actually, you know what? That's not true. After WCW went down, I had a conversation with Jimmy Hart. I was doing some freelance articles for uh, a publication called Wrestling Digest, which are the same people that did Baseball Digest and Football Digest, all those little small magazines we probably all grew up reading. Um, I was freelancing for them, and I did a story on a company, a startup company called the X. It was called the X. Was it the XWF? XWF. Yes. That Hulk Hogan was involved in and Jimmy Hart. And we talked about, you know, booking uh, and, and like what the creative approach can be going forward at that point in time. 
and Jimmy said that the crash TV, like it had to have an end point. He, he gave a rather colorful uh, description. I don't know if we're, we're allowed to curse on here. I, so I won't. Um, but he basically said, you know, at one point, like somebody's going to basically have to drop their pants and, you know, pull something out on TV. Like you, you just, well, that's the next step because they, people have seen everything else. And I thought that was a great point. Crash TV is awesome when it happens and when it's never been done before. WWE was so squeaky clean before the Attitude Era that to suddenly see them going down that road was shocking. And it was must-see TV. And it was, oh, my God, what are they going to do next? But you can't do that forever. And I think that played out. And then you have to adjust. And what can you do next? And, um, you know, that's the thing. I, I think Vince is, you know, I don't, this isn't like the beat up on Vince Russo segment, but after, you know, WCW went down, he went to TNA and tried the same. Th- I mean, he's never been a success anywhere else except WWE. And it was at that, he was in the right place at the right time with the right talent. And Vince McMahon, as his editor, as has been told many times, Vince's ideas didn't go on, Rooster's ideas didn't go unfiltered. Vince vetted them. Um, you know, I think it, it was just proven that. None, nothing he did after that was a success. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And in some fairness to Vince Russo, there I'm not going to name names. There have been a number of people that have worked under Vince McMahon that looked really good. And then when they left Vince McMahon, eh, you know, not, not so much. But you, my friend, ended up actually working for Vince McMahon, which I would imagine is kind of a crazy experience because you're a, a journalist at heart. And I'm sure you've heard all the crazy stories, good, bad, and ugly, about mm-hmm. Vince McMahon. But it's very different when you actually end up working for the guy. Was he as, I don't even know how to ask this, was he as Vince McMahon-ish as you expected when you started working at WWE? I've actually been asked um, some version of that question several times. And I will tell you this. Yes, he, 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 is the, he lived up to the larger-than-life expectation that you have of Vince. You hear all the stories. Um, and I had dealt with him some as a journalist before that. I had interviewed Vince a couple times. Vince knew who I was. Um, but until you're actually, it, it's it's one thing when you're a journalist interviewing Vince. He, there's a certain respect there. Um, once you go to work for him and you are his employee and you answer to him, he looks at you a lot differently. And uh, it's all I can say is everything you've heard about Vince is true and then some. Like I don't know that there's any uh, exaggerations. You know all the things you hear about. You know, you can't sneeze in front of him and certain words you can't say in front of him. And all, all those things are true. I, I lived I lived through it. Um, I, I'll say this about about Vince McMahon. He's people say he's out of touch or he's a genius. I always say he's both. There are certain instances where Vince is clearly out of touch and I feel like he's dead wrong on certain things creatively. But you can't argue with. You know, we we would sometimes complain about Vince internally in the writer's room and then realize, you know, someone would ultimately bring up like we're actually sitting here in this huge tower in Connecticut that Vince built out of a regional wrestling promotion and complaining about (laughs) Vince's judgment on things. So you got to give him credit for the empire that he created. You know, so it's like he's not a genius. He's, He's not. He's not a he's not either a genius or a out of touch old man. He at times was both. What's the best idea that you had or somebody else, one of your colleagues had that was left on the table there? Jeez. I, I, I had a few. Um, 
I had an idea one time when uh, AJ, I, I've told this one before, AJ Lee was kind of doing her crazy chick thing and it was really getting over. And we were about to bring in, um, Dean Ambrose was killing it um, at FCW. I think it was FCW at that point, not NXT. But he was getting ready to move up to the main roster. And I pitched this story of um, AJ gets committed and goes into the, uh, you know, this sort of, this might remind old time fans of the, the Ric Flair when Ric, Ric Flair was committed and was in the, uh, the insane asylum or whatever. Uh, but it was, it was, she goes in and while she's there, she happens to meet another uh, person who's been committed. And that was Dean Ambrose. And the idea would be that they, they break out, <laughs> they, they, they join forces, they break out and they become this almost like Bonnie and Clyde or, uh, to use a more modern reference, a Mickey and Mallory of natural born killers type of couple in WWE. And I thought that could have been really cool if we did something like that. But, um, that look, I can't, I can't argue with what we ended up doing with Dean Ambrose, making him part of the shield. But that was just one idea that was thrown out there. Uh, I, I pitched a bunch of, a bunch of ideas for Drew McIntyre because I felt like, um, he was such an underused talent. Uh, you know, I had one where because of the Scottish thing, that he joins forces with Roddy Piper and becomes, you know, Piper becomes his mouthpiece. I had another one where it's the opposite and Piper wants to be his protege. Uh, Piper wants him to be his protege and it starts off and then uh, Drew turns on him. And so then you have Drew going against Piper. You know, I had some things like that. But, um, you know, th there were so many good ideas from a lot of people in the company that that ended up on the cutting room floor. Look, I even went with some outside the box ideas, um, which some smart fans, you know, some like purists may hate. I pitched a amnesia angle with Kofi Kingston because we thought Kofi needed a, um, a change, right? Cause Kofi was, was such a nice guy and such a good baby face, but it's like, he was only, he, he had reached a certain level and he wasn't going beyond that. And I thought, what if Kofi like gets dropped on his head but when he comes back, he's like a totally different, like he's lost his moral compass and, and Kofi suddenly becomes the anti Kofi. And then down the line, we could reveal maybe he really didn't have amnesia. Maybe this was the real Kofi all along. You could go with it, you know, in a bunch of different directions, but yeah, there were, there were so many ideas. I mean, there, those are a few that come to mind, but, um, there were a lot, a lot of writers had, had good ideas that just never saw the light of day. Yeah, and I look back, and when was your last year in WWE? Uh, 2014, summer of 2014 is when I was uh, laid off. Okay, so if you, you look back like around that time, like I'd say like mid-2000s to like around even like 2014, it was very tough for a lot of the young talent to get over. Not always uh, through, any, through any fault of their own. I feel like during that time period, it was very sink or swim, right? The world title was very exclusive to kind of like the John Cena's, Randy Orton, Batista, Triple H. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but there were times where there was a guy like a Ryback or a Wade Baird or somebody where the timing seemed right to at least give him a little bit of a shot, give him a little bit of a rub, and for whatever reason, it just kind of fell through. And to this day, I still feel like the company suffers a little bit from that because, let's keep it real, a lot of the most fans still look at guys like John Cena and Triple H as the quote-unquote real stars, whereas the other guys are still kind of looked at as, okay, they're stars, but not you know transcendent or, or needle movers. How much do you think JDB suffered from not investing in young talent sooner? I think that's a very fair point, and I think you, you gave some great examples of it, and it still goes on to this day. You know, I, I for the life of me, don't understand 
why uh, Goldberg is getting a title run at 53 years old and is squashing a guy like uh, Bray Wyatt. That just makes no sense to me. Or, um, you know, even even Goldberg, when they brought him in with the thing with Lesnar, like WWE did such a great job of making Lesnar special. And here comes Goldberg, 53 years old or however he was then, 51, and and takes down, uh, you know, with a quick knockout blow, basically. It beats Brock. Like, this, that stuff like that doesn't make any sense to me. And I think the longer WWE keeps going back to The Undertaker and, and, those, and, and John Cena and those guys, not that they've done it a lot with Cena lately, but, yeah, it's like you, you need to move on. They did it with Triple H for a long time. Um, he's always in a big angle at WrestleMania. It's like, yeah, you, you, when you constantly basically reinforce that those were the real stars and these guys aren't, um, yeah, you got a problem. And I think a lot of people saw that for years in WWE and knew it was going to be a problem. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's come home to roost that, that there was time to pull the trigger. And look, I, I, they did try to pull the trigger on Roman Reigns. And, and I, this may not be a popular opinion, but I 100% think Roman was the guy you know, that started when I was still at WWE. And, um, I mean, to a man or to a person, I think every one of us believed Roman Reigns was going to be the next big thing and that he's the guy that we should strap the rocket to. You know, I don't think anyone really foresaw the fans pushing back so hard the way they did against him. Um, and I think a lot of that Roman was a, was a victim of timing and a victim of circumstances with Daniel Bryan and, you know, and CM Punk and, and, you know, whatever. Um, but I think Roman was absolutely the right guy. And, it, you know, for whatever reasons, it just didn't work. Yeah. And, uh, and looking back with Roman Reigns, too, I think history will look back at him very favorably, no matter what happens from here on out, because he's a guy that's had so many great matches. Whether you like him or hate him, he's had so many great matches, especially on pay-per-view. And I, I recently rewatched the WrestleMania 31 match. I know it was after you were gone with uh, Brock Lesnar. And while it was a cool moment for Seth to cash in and win the world title and everything, you can make the strong argument that Roman Reigns had such a great performance as a babyface in that match that it might have made more sense to have him just beat Brock Lesnar from the get-go rather than delaying it, delaying it, and delaying it, and kind of making it anticlimactic when he finally did win. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I love that match. I love the story it told. As I was watching it, as you said, I wasn't in the company at that point, so I'm watching it as a fan and a guy who really was pulling for Roman because I thought he deserved it. Um, I was disappointed that Vince at that, you know, people say Vince doesn't listen to the fans that he did then. Like the plan all along was f for Roman to win the title. I don't think that's any secret when I was still there. That was the plan all along that, that Roman was going to win the title at that WrestleMania and, and the fans didn't accept it. And Vince changed it. And, um, I was very disappointed when Seth Rollins' music hit and Seth came down with the briefcase. As soon as that happens, you know what the finish is going to be. And and I, I agree with you. I, I think there was a good story there. Roman was fighting from underneath. Brock was this indestructible monster. And that was the moment that, that was supposed to be Roman's moment, and I think they should have gone with it. And, and yes, by delaying it, 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 didn't, it, it didn't help Roman any. You, know, you could argue it hurt him. So and, and look, I would have also been one. I was one of those guys, one of those pundits saying after that, like, OK, you've tried and tried and tried to push Roman as this, you know, as the next John Cena, the next big baby face. And it's it's not really working. I would have pulled the trigger on a heel turn. I think Roman as a heel would have been money. Like, I think you could have made money, drawn money with Roman as a heel 
And I think it would have been very much similar to what happened with Rock. They had to turn Rock heel because, you know, I'm going back the early Rock. Um, they had to turn him heel because the fans were rejecting him so bad. And then once he became a heel and people saw how great of a heel he was, he became this huge baby face. And not that you can compare any Roman or anyone to The Rock. That's kind of unfair. But I just think there's similarities there. And that could have been – I think the same thing would have happened. Roman would have been this great kick-ass heel with all this heel heat. And when the time was right to then have him go baby face, I think it would have – I think they would have gotten him to where they wanted him to be all along. Yeah, I, listen, man, I totally agree. And I think with everything going on now with you know the pandemic and everything else, for him to stand up for himself and say, you know what, I'm not going to work at this WrestleMania due to health concerns. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of my family. By the way, I think he's having twins, so congrats to him on that. Like, The more I see of Roman Reigns, especially outside of the ring, the more I'm convinced that – for all the criticism Vince gets, like he was right. Like, Roman Reigns is the guy, I think. Like, you know, whether or not he would have gotten to John Cena's level, Rock's level, that's that's another story. But I really have a lot of respect for him, j- not just as a wrestler, but as a person. I mean, it takes a lot as the top star to get that kind of payout, that kind of attention, to say, you know what, I'm going to put my family and my health first. Absolutely. Look, Roman checked off every box when you're looking at the next big star, and we all saw that. Uh, when he was Liaki, right, back in, in uh, FCW. You just looked at him. He's got the family lineage. He's got the look. Uh, he had the right attitude, a guy who wanted to come in, work hard. You know, he didn't have a huge – he had confidence. It was very similar to me, again, with The Rock. Rock had an, an incredible amount of confidence in himself, but it wasn't ego in a bad way. It was, I just know I'm good at this. You know, I know I can still learn and get better. But I'm very confident in what I can do. And Roman was that same kind of guy. Um, And the way he carried himself outside the ring, he carried himself like a star. He looked like a star. There was just – it still amazes me to this day that it didn't – he didn't get over. I would have bet any amount of money that Roman was going to be the next big thing. Again, I'm not alone in that. We all thought that. Uh, But yeah, as a person, um, I didn't interact with him a whole lot. But when I did, all three of those guys in the Shield – were, were they were just so hungry and they just wanted to be great and they all were coachable uh very easy to work with all, all three of them but roman just he had that special it factor that uh, almost you know once every uh, once a decade or every type of talent and um you know the fact that it didn't work out it's still like i said still boggles my mind but yeah i, I give him a lot of credit for bowing out of wrestling. He has to take care of his health first and foremost. I think it's kind of ridiculous that he was even expected to do that. I, I mean, I think it's ridiculous they're still doing shows of any kind at this point, even in empty arenas or controlled environments, whatever. Um, but, I mean, maybe that's a different discussion for a different time. Well, you know what? I want, I want to say this, too. Uh, shout out to ROH, from what I understand. They've been paying talent. They've been paying staff this whole time without running shows. To me, that's the way you got to do it. I'm so proud of of Ring of Honor. I know it's going to come off, you know, like, oh, well, you work for the company. Um, look, if I wasn't proud of them, I just wouldn't say anything, <laughs> right? So I, I, the way they've taken care of talent, the way they've handled this whole thing, um, look, we, we had shows uh, the weekend of March 13th. March 13th and the 14th uh, was our anniversary, 18th anniversary weekend. We had the 18th anniversary show. Um, and then the next night was supposed to be the past versus present show, which I think was going to be really cool. And a lot of people were looking forward to our talent was was there. Half the talent, the roster had fl- already flown into Vegas and the other half were 
in a plane on their way over. When the decision was made, you know, the smart thing is let's not do this show even in an empty arena. And at the time, I thought, man, I think we, you know, because other other promotions were doing the empty arena stuff. I was like, man, we, I don't know why we didn't. The talent was already there. But in hindsight, it was absolutely the right decision, I think, to err on the side of caution. Uh, and ROH really did do a great job of taking care of the talent, of getting them flights back home. Um, and like you said, continuing to pay them through all the shows that were canceled through the end of May has been uh, like I- I'm really proud the company stepped up the way it did and you my friend also stepped up unfortunately you were laid off by daddy in 2014 you ended up bouncing back fast forward present day you are with ring of honor you went from working with a lot of established stars and of course at the time very hungry young stars in the shield now you're working with a roster that looks very different than it did even a, a year or two ago filled with lots of young hungry talent that wants to get over, that wants to be the next breakthrough star. In the case of ROH, they want to be, you know, the next uh, Adam Cole and uh, the, the next Jay Lethal and everybody else. What is your assessment of the current roster of ROH and your experience there so far? Well, again, people may say I'm biased, but I think you could make the case. If you look at the roster, the current roster in Ring of Honor, from top to bottom and take it as a whole, I don't know that Ring of Honor has ever had a more talented or deep roster than what we have right now. Now, I know there's some great, great, great performers to come through Ring of Honor. Some of the biggest stars in the business, obviously, have come through Ring of Honor. And and I'm not taking anything away from them. I'm saying as a whole top to bottom, you know, we've got whatever we've got, 40, 50 people under contract. I don't think there's ever been this much, this much quantity of talent and, and, and there's a lot of quality there as well. And having been having worked at other places, uh, there's just something about this locker room that's special. It's not just the talent. It's the um, it almost reminds me of what I heard people say about ECW. I never worked for ECW, but that this was almost like a family. And, um, you know, again, that sounds cliche, but I'm just telling you what I've observed. There, there's no one's I don't see anybody playing political games. I don't see anyone backstabbing. I don't see any uh, people forming alliances to keep this person down or a click or anything like that in ROH. I see a bunch of people who have a ton of pride in what they do and who really want the company to be the best it could be. And they all understand it takes a team effort to do that, whether you're the guy in the opening match or you're the, um, you know, the the lighthearted segment or you're the main event. Everyone understands that everyone is important and has a role. And and the way everyone's just kind of sees that opportunity, um, I just, like I said, I, I couldn't be happier working for Ring of Honor. I, I, I really couldn't. Just the people that you get to work with, the talent there. Um, I'm so excited about where we can go from here. And let's be honest, I know Ring of Honor has, has gotten a lot, you know, they've They've gotten beat up a lot. Um, the popular, you know, opinion is is Ring of Honor's dead or whatever. Um, that's been said before, and I've had long discussions with people like Kerry Silken and others who have been around for a long time. Who said, "Yeah, you know, we've been written off so many times. It's like when Daniel Bryan leaves. Uh, I'm sorry, Bryan Danielson leaves. You know, who's going to replace him? And Samoa Joe, and there always is someone. What's going to happen when Punk leaves? What's going to happen when Adam Cole leaves? There's always that next group of guys who are hungry." And want to fill those spots. I was worried, I'll be honest with you, when 
the elite left when Cody and the Young Bucks and Adam Page left. I was worried. But we immediately signed PCO and Mark Haskins and Brody King and Bandito. And all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, okay, um, maybe it was time to turn a page. And as great as those guys all were, now we've got new opportunities and new matchups. And RH has continued to sign new talent since then. And again, I, you know, guys like Roosh, um, I don't want to start naming names because I know I'll leave some important people out. Obviously, having a cornerstone like Jay Lethal is huge. Mr. ROH, Matt Taven. To me, Matt Taven is one of the most underrated guys in this business, even though he's won every belt that you can win in Ring of Honor, including the world championship. There still seems to be this backlash of, well, he's not that good. And I always say to people, are you watching? Are you watching the matches? When is Matt Taven? I I can't remember the last time Matt Taven had a bad match. Matt Taven kills it on the microphone. Matt Taven carries himself like a star. But it's not it's cool. You know, it's very much like Roman Reigns. I think it's cool not to it's cool to reject Matt Taven. or Oh, ROH just wants to push Matt Taven. No, Matt Taven has worked his way up from what, 2013 or wherever he started, gradually climbed the ladder, won the tag title, won the TV title, won this to the point where he's the guy that had earned that world title run. Um, so, again, I, I'm just I'm super proud of, of being part of this company. Well, that's awesome to hear. I did mention to uh, my buddy Leon St. Giovanni, who I actually graduated college with, and I said, hey, yeah. I'm interviewing uh, Kevin Eck, and he's like, man, that guy's the man. And I mentioned <laughs> it's Kevin Marshall, former JDB writer, now with back with Paramount, who uh, worked with you. I mentioned, hey, I'm, I'm interviewing Kevin Eck. He's the man. So uh, you have a lot of admiration for the ROH talent and for people you've worked with. A lot of people seem to be saying a lot of good things about you, too. So uh, I think that's That's much appreciated. Uh, I love LSG. Um, Kevin Marshall was was a great guy to work with. Kevin's such a well, you know, he's such a funny guy, yeah. but also really, really, really smart and and very creative. And um, he was let go the same time I was. And I think WWE dropped the ball on him as well because he had a lot to to offer. But I will say, in, in in a matter of you know, just as full transparency and being fair and honest, uh, you'll probably find some people I worked with over the years that maybe won't say as, as nice things. Um, you know, maybe some people uh, on the writing team I worked with at WWE. I don't know. I have nothing bad to say about anyone, but it was a very competitive room. Um, you know, we had like 26 writers at one point, and it was a lot of people scrambling, you know, to, to curry favor with Vince and get the pat on the back and, and, uh, and get your idea, you know, to happen. And, um, you know, so sometimes personalities clash, but I certainly have a lot of respect for anyone I've ever, ever worked with at, at any company, whether we always got along or agreed or we didn't, you know, you can learn from everybody. And, um, and that's what I always try to do is learn. Look, I, I was very lucky again to, to be in a company with guys like Michael Hayes, um, you know, that you could pick his brain road dog, Brian James, when he joined creative, um, you know, you triple H, I mean, and of course Vince himself, to, to be around those guys and and to just be a sponge, uh, it can only help you in, in anything you do after that. So I'm, uh, again, very grateful and, and feel blessed to have been in those positions. That's a really great point. I spoke to Alex Marvez at the Combine, and he talked about the same thing. He said that he kind of wished he worked for an NFL team at one point just because while you do know a lot as a journalist and, and covering the beat, you find out even more when you're on the inside, and it gives you such a greater perspective. He's absolutely right. And um, 
you know, I, I don't work. I think you mentioned I, you know, I work for the Ravens. I work. I write uh, three times a week for uh, BaltimoreRavens.com. It's actually my second. This is probably something I haven't talked a lot about. It's actually my second stint with the Ravens for a very brief period in 2002. Um, I worked with them um, as as uh, their internet content writer. I was only there for a few months, and at that time, I was the first person in that position. Again, this goes back 18 years, and um, I was looking for you know, I, WCW had gone down, and I was out of work for about. Um, you know, I was taking part time jobs or whatever at that point, and uh, the Baltimore Sun, my old employer, came through with a full time offer for me that was just financially was a, was a lot more than what the Ravens were offering to pay at that point. So I had to leave, but I loved working for the Ravens back in 2002 for those few months and, and jumped at the chance when this other opportunity came up to, uh, to write for them three times a week. I mean, I'm a, a huge, huge Ravens fan had season tickets since day one, wow. kept my season tickets. Even when I lived in Georgia, um, came back, tried to come back to Baltimore for at least half the home games. Same thing when I lived in Connecticut, made the four hour drive back on game days most, most weeks. So, uh, I mean, John Harbaugh has this saying, like who has it better than us? Who has it better than me? Like I get to work for ring of honor. I get to work for the Baltimore Ravens and I never have to leave my house. Like I work from home. Like my office is my, my, my office at home is my office. So I know it's tough. It's tough times right now for a lot of people that are, you know, social butterflies that want to leave the house and, and gather with people. And they miss that experience of being at work and interacting with their coworkers. As far as that goes, nothing has changed for me. Um, working from home has, has been a way of life for uh, several years now. So uh, I, I obviously have no, no complaints about what I'm doing. That's awesome, man. And you've been very gracious with your time. We, we appreciate it. Before I let you go, though, we got to talk a little bit about football. You do write for the Baltimore Ravens. I just want to say, too, low-key, the Ravens have been a fantastic organization since their inception. Two Super Bowls. They've done very well, made the playoffs more often than not. They got the absolute steal of the decade with Lamar Jackson, and they just had their draft, at least the first few rounds at the moment that we are talking right now. Uh, what's your overall assessment of the 2019 Ravens going into the 2020 season and, of course, their recent draft picks? So I, I've, as again, as a longtime fan, I've gotten to celebrate two Super Bowls. But last year may have been, look, despite the heartbreaking loss in the playoffs, from week one to week 17, I've never enjoyed a season more. And what's so great about Lamar Jackson and a lot of people will say, I, this is not a, a fresh take, but he's just so damn likable. Like beyond what he brings as an athlete, as a quarterback, uh, just the way he carries himself and how humble he is and grounded. It's like, how do you not love Lamar Jackson? Uh, and the way the way the Eric DaCosta and the front office have built this team, they're so smart. It, what, what a seamless transition from Ozzie Newsom as GM to Eric DaCosta, who had learned under Ozzie all those years, constantly groomed for this position, could have gone to other places, knew that this was the job he wanted, and patiently waited till Ozzie was ready to hand over the reins. And it's been so seamless. Uh, I think DaCosta just gets this draft and 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 free agents really too, just putting it, constructing a team. He just gets it. He's just so smart when it comes to that. And I love John Harbaugh. Um, 
you don't always agree with every decision a head coach makes, of course. There are times I'm like, ah, I wish we wouldn't have gone for it on fourth down there or whatever. But overall, um, we're so lucky to have John Harbaugh as our head coach. It's, it's, it just was really funny to me a couple years ago when we had not made the playoffs for a couple years. We were going nine and seven, eight and eight, nine and seven. Um, and it was like, well, it's time to get rid of Harbaugh. You know, I heard people saying that and I was ready to pull my hair out. Like, you're kidding me. Like, how quickly do we forget? Like, this is a guy that took us to the playoffs every single year. I think his first six years there, whatever it was. Um, like, we're very lucky. John Harbaugh is one of the best coaches in the NFL. You don't let a guy like that go. You need continuity. And that's what I love about this organization. I do. And I think they, they bring in good guys for the most part. And um, it's such a – it's such a great, you know, same thing with Ring of Honor. It's such a great locker room. It's a great culture. It's a winning culture. Everybody fills their their role. Um, you know, like the wide receivers on this team aren't necessarily going to put up huge numbers, and they know that. They know they might be called on to block more than they'd like to, but they do it because it's for the greater good, and everybody's bought in, and that's how you go 14-2. and two. I don't know if they're going to go 14-2 and two again in 2020, but they may very well go 13 and three or 12 and four and still, but you know, as long as they win the Super Bowl, that's all I care about, you know? And I think they could very well have a worse regular season record, but go on and win it all because they have improved the team. The, the guys they've picked up in the draft, Patrick Queen, um, you know, Devin DuVernay as a wide receiver was a steal. I think they got him at 92. Um, J.K. Dobbins is running back. I mean, I was one of those people when they made that pick going, no, we don't need a running back. But then you think about it and you look at the the total takeaway from the six draft picks we've gotten so far, man, it's hard not to be excited. So I just I got my fingers crossed that that we have some semblance of an NFL season. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I mean that just as a fan in general, but as a Ravens fan, man, I just feel like 2020 – is really going to be our year. So I, I hope there is a season to be had. I think it'll, I, I have, I'm cautiously optimistic that it's going to end differently than it ended for us in the postseason last year. I mean, the, the odds look good. And I think people got to have some perspective here. I think Lamar Jackson just way too criticized. Let's, let's, let's have some perspective. He is younger than the 2020 number one overall pick, Joe Burrow. Right. He's already had more success this early in his career than Peyton Manning. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be Peyton Manning. Most people don't have a career as a Peyton Manning. Okay, if he did, that'd be amazing. But the point is, Peyton Manning, his first, like, two, three, four seasons were pretty rough. He went years before he even won his first playoff game, let alone got to the AFC title game, let alone got to his first Super Bowl. I mean, for years, Peyton Manning was known as a choker. So for all the people saying, oh, man, look, Lamar Jackson this, Lamar Jackson that, he's, you know, oh, he can't do it in the postseason. Even then that loss to the Titans, he had, what, like 500-plus yards total? I mean, come on. That's... The sky's the limit for him. The kid is already a reigning MVP. So little perspective, people. Right. Well, you got to judge him on what he did in one game or what he did in, in uh, sixteen or fifteen games because he didn't play the last game. You know, uh, to, look, we we beat a lot of good teams in twenty nineteen. We beat the Forty ers We beat the Bills. We you know beat the Texans handily. Uh, I know the Ravens or the the Rams did make the playoffs last year, but they're still a good team right off the Super Bowl. You know, beat them forty five to six. Uh, beat the Patriots by 17 points. So to say like, well, they can't win the big one or whatever. Look, it was just, that's why they play the games, right? That's the cliche. Anything can happen on any given Sunday. And unfortunately, 
the Ravens had a bad game against the Titans, and I give the Titans credit. That was a lot of their doing. But, you know, guys were dropping passes that weren't dropping passes during the, during the regular season. Um, you know, letting a guy run for 195 yards, even a runner's grazed Derrick Henry, like that really hurt the Ravens' pride, I know. They pride themselves on stopping the run. Um, and, you know, we went forward on fourth down so many times all year long, and it worked for us. We went for fourth and one twice in that game, and, it, and they didn't make it either time. I mean, that's almost unfathomable that all those all those things had to happen for us to, I think, to lose that game to a nine and seven, six seeded Titans team. And they all did. Like everything that needed to go wrong for us to lose that game went wrong. That to me doesn't take as disappointing as it was. And I was there. I was in the stadium. You know, I was disappointed as anybody. But that doesn't take away from what they did, you know, weeks one through 17. I mean, to go 14 and two in a league that's built on parity, like that's really, really hard. And and Lamar, yeah, I mean, to be unanimous MVP, I think he, he and Tom Brady are the only two unanimous MVPs. Um, to do that in his first full year as a starter, you know, he's, what is he, he's 19-3 and three as a starter in the regular season to start his career. Like, that's just, that's, that, that's amazing. And beyond those numbers or whatever, just, you know, it's the eyeball test. Just watch Lamar play. He is a special player. And to think that Lamar Jackson's never going to win a playoff game or, you know, never going to win a, a Super Bowl, like, I mean, come on. But Lamar's a lightning rod, and I get it. A lot of people dismissed him as, as a quarterback. And and anytime he fails, people can say, aha, see, I was right. But I just think they make themselves look stupid when they do that. Totally agree. I mean, look, we're, we're in the hot take era, but, I mean, he did he- – Right now, he absolutely passes the eyeball test, and I think there's a lot of teams right now that don't have a quarterback or a good quarterback that would definitely take Lamar Jackson any day. But, Kevin, we really do appreciate the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, learning about your career, getting your insight on the Baltimore Ravens. Before we let you go, what's the best piece of advice you give anybody that's hoping to have a successful media career like you? Wow. Well, it's going to sound like probably a cliche, but, you know, certainly – um, go to a good school that has a good journalism uh, program. Like I think I went to uh, Towson. It was Towson State back in the day, which, uh, you know, it's not the University of Maryland as far as being a bigger, big school, but very good and well-respected journalism program. And I wanted to stay in state. Towson was, uh, was a great place. So, you know, go to a good school with a good journalism program. And then after that, a lot of it is just being aggressive and, and you know, flood the market like once you get your foot in the door, whether it's an internship or whatever, there are a lot. There's a lot of opportunity. If if you're talented and you believe in yourself, there's a spot for you in this business. Um, I'm a firm believer in the and talent wins out. I'm all I, look. I think there are some people who get lucky and fall into positions, but maybe don't even have that much talent. <laughs> sometimes that sometimes that happens. So if you have talent, you're going to be a success. It's just like anything, right? Like if if, if it's what you want to do. And you set your mind to it and, and you don't give up and, you, you know, these are all cliches, of course. But if you if you don't accept failure, then you won't fail. Like that's the best. And that's not just, I guess, the journalism business or whatever. That's that's any business. You know, as far as the wrestling side of it, wrestling's a little bit harder, I guess, for people to get into. But it, it, it can start at the independent level. You know, if you have independent wrestling in your area, um, Start seeing if you can help out behind the scenes. Make yourself useful. Get that foot in the door. Make contacts. Network. Opportunities will open up. And pay your dues at that level, 
I've seen it happen with a lot of people. They get their foot in the door on the independent level. Uh, it's happened right here in Maryland. And then they go on to work for WWE, NXT. Like it, it, it can happen. So just do your homework and and persevere and don't give up in, the, in any business. There's a very good chance you'll succeed. Awesome. Wise words, Kevin. Thank you so very much. You can follow him on Twitter at the Kevin Eck. Of course, you can check out the ROH Strong Podcast, ROHWrestling.com, wherever you guys get your podcasts, BaltimoreRavens.com. Anywhere else, Kevin? I think you pretty much covered. I just before we go, I'd say I, I really hope people give the ROH Strong Podcast a listen. I think this first episode with Marty Skrull, I think you're really gonna like it. Again, Marty was very open and honest about, you know, probably all the questions I think a fan would want to ask Marty, um, I think we covered. So uh, I, I really hope people people give it a shot and listen to it.